The American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello, I'm Trish Critic. Thank you for joining us today for another edition of the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine article discussion podcast series. Today's podcast will discuss a topic of interest for those of us who care for patients with respiratory failure in the ICU and have been working towards earlier mobility in this population. We're going to discuss the article entitled, A Randomized Trial of an Intensive Physical Therapy Program for Acute Respiratory Failure Patients. This article was published in the May 15th edition of the Blue Journal. I'm pleased Dr. Mark Moss, the lead author of the study, is here with me today. Dr. Moss is Professor of Medicine at the University of Colorado. In addition, we're lucky enough to also have Dr. Carol Hodson from Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. Dr. Hodson is a Senior Research Fellow for the ANZIC Research Group and co-wrote the editorial which accompanies Dr. Moss's study. My first question is for you, Dr. Moss. Before we discuss the results of your trial, can you give us a little background on why you chose to study the potential benefits of intensive physical therapy? Sure, Trish. When I was at Emory University, um, I worked with a very strong neurology group um, led by Mark Rich, and we became interested in the neuromuscular consequences of critical illness um, and studied myopathies and neuropathies and the role of EMGs and nerve conduction studies. And when I moved to the University of Colorado in 2006, they have a very strong neurology group but they also have a very, very strong physical therapy group. There are many physical therapists in that group that are NIH-funded researchers. So we continue to do the neurology work, but started to collaborate with the physiotherapists um, at the University of Colorado. And it was a natural extension at the time to think about the role of physical therapy as a therapy for patients with ICU-acquired weakness. So the study sort of grew out of collaborative efforts and, and just people that were available at the university with expertise in this area. So it's something we were interested in because we realized that weakness due to a lot of studies from Margaret Herrich and others was a common problem in people that had survived critical illness. And we, as others around the world, were interested in trying to find a way to treat those patients and physical therapy was a natural thing to look at. So that's interesting because you can see the strong impact of partnering with research physical therapists in the study. So specific to that, intensive physical therapy can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And in your paper, your team clearly delineated the components of both intensive and standard physical therapy for the investigation. I'm wondering if you could highlight some of the specific differences between intensive and standard therapy in the study to highlight those for the listeners. Sure. I think this is a very, very important question in the sense that the word intensive needs to be better defined. And I actually even think the word physical therapy needs to be defined. Um, because physical therapy is a profession. It's a discipline. And often people will treat it as if it's just one entity, sort of like saying, oh, they had surgery. Well, there are a lot of different types of surgery. And in the same way, there are a lot of different types of physical therapy. So we were very careful to define what we meant by physical therapy and what we went meant by intensive. And our protocol for the intensive group had five different components um, that the patients received. They had techniques for proper breathing during exercise and activities. They had therapeutic exercises, which is sort of strength building. They had exercises designed to improve their trunk mobility and strength, so that's core training. Functional mobility retraining, that's 
teaching people balance and coordination, kind of what people think they need after a stroke, learning how to walk again. But often it's something that's essential for people that are recovering from critical illness. And then the fifth component was sort of a range of motion positioning um, part of it. And the difference was is that the intensive group got a therapy seven days a week, up to 30 minutes while they were in the intensive care unit a day, um, and 45 minutes a day while they were out on the floor. And the standard group, which was based on survey data of what at the time was being done routinely in intensive care units, at least in the United States, was three days a week and for less amount of time. And it was really just the passive range of motions positioning, a little bit of the functional mobility retraining, but not to the extent of duration, intensity, and frequency of therapy. So there was separation between the two groups in terms of what they got. Yeah, there was actually a remarkable separation between the groups. And I was intrigued by some of the components like the respiratory training, which we don't have in our standard physical therapy for sure. I'm interested, Dr. Hudson, you've done a lot of work characterizing efforts on early mobilization in the ICU. Do you think there are specific aspects of physical therapy or intensive physical therapy that might have had more or less benefit to these patients long-term? Do you think there's aspects of that physical therapy that are more or less important? So I think that Dr. Moss has done an amazing job at characterizing intensive physical therapy. As he said, he summarized it as duration, frequency and intensity. But unfortunately, we really don't have any idea what the best dosage is to deliver to our critically ill patients. So it's entirely possible that intensive physical therapy has a lot of benefit, but it's also possible that we cause harm by really intensively exercising our critically ill patients. And, you know, I think that intrinsically we all believe that exercise must be good for our patients, but we've seen in a couple of other populations that have studied this long term that that intensive therapy has not benefited our patients in the long term. So to my mind, there's still a couple of questions about what we should be doing with our patients. And certainly one of the questions is how early should we start? I think that our group believes that earlier is better and we would really try and exercise our patients within 48 hours of intensive care admission and perhaps mechanical ventilation as opposed to Dr. Moss's study where I think the median time to starting physical therapy was eight days. We think that this might have quite a significant difference in the type of therapy that you deliver because you know, within the first two days, you're hoping really to stop the degeneration of muscle mass and the loss of strength, as opposed to by eight days, you've probably had significant loss of muscle mass and strength, and you're trying to build back up something that's already been lost. We think that that might mean that you're actually trying to do two completely different things when you exercise your critically ill patients. We also think in our group that exercising patients at the highest level might be important. So, you know, Dr. Moss did an amazing job with his physical therapist to really give breathing exercises and core strengthening exercises, upper limb and lower limb strengthening exercises and functional activities such as sitting over the edge of the bed and sit to stand and walking. Um, And he certainly had separation between the two groups. The difference that we might do in a study, if we were going to conduct a study like this, would be we try and exercise our patients at the highest level possible for as long as possible. So rather than perhaps starting with bed exercises and strengthening, we would get them, if they're able to stand, they would stand and they would walk for as long as possible until we've really exhausted them and then get them back into bed to complete the amount of time needed in the less stressful positions. But 
you know, there's clear separation between the groups in this study and the early intensive physical therapy was really impressive in the components that the patients were able to complete in terms of frequency, seven days a week. You know, again, fantastic effort. We just don't know yet if that's optimal for our critically ill patients. So I think that kind of leads into the really meat of what I wanted to ask you about, Mark, which is I'm sure what you knew I was going to ask you about, and that is the trial didn't show a difference in outcomes between the patients who received this intensive physical therapy versus the standard therapy. And I think you nicely discuss in the paper a variety of potential reasons why there was no difference seen, and Carol has cited some of those now. I'm curious if you think maybe some of those played into it or what you thought were the most likely reasons why we didn't see a benefit in the trial. Yeah. I mean, the first thing I I would like to say is we we were disappointed by the results of the study. I mean, we were hoping that this was going to be a positive trial. It's not, we didn't go into this in a non-inferiority type of way. So we were hoping for a positive trial also. And I would say we we believe in physical therapy. We think this really works, even though this is a negative trial. But I think it was negative for some important reasons, as Carol alluded to. One reason potentially is the heterogeneity of the patients. There's a lot of variability in the patient's response to therapy. You need larger studies than probably what we did, or you need smaller studies that focus on a more homogeneous patient population, and therefore we require some methods to risk stratify patients in terms of their response to physical therapy. So either I think we need to do larger trials or, as I said, identify ways that we can identify patients that respond properly to therapy. So that'd be the one thing would be the heterogeneity of the patients. I completely agree with Carol in terms of timing. And the study wasn't really set up to be an early study. It was set up to be an intensive study. And by criteria, the patients had to be on the vent for four or five days. The criteria got changed halfway through the study. So there's no way that study was going to start physical therapy after 24 to 48 hours of mechanical ventilation. And there is this balance. We were a little concerned that early physical therapy during the time that the muscles are inflamed and undergoing proteolysis, that early physical therapy could, I'm not saying would, but could be potentially harmful in that setting. So we deliberately had later therapy, and I'm not sure what the right answer is that way. I think that's something that future studies will need to answer in terms of when the therapy should start. I think the third thing that's very interesting about this literature is that, in general, you see improvement in physical function, however you want to define that, up to about three months. And then in most of these studies by Linda Dennehy, Margaret Herridge, and others, there's this plateauing effect after three months, and people don't seem to improve their physical function that much after that time. So one thing I think in future studies is we might need to really focus, as Carol said, on the early part of it, but I think equally so we need to focus on this later amount of therapy after patients go home and making sure that they are getting the right therapy at that time. I know there have been studies that have looked at longer-term physical therapy that have also been negative, but I think we've got to figure out how to change that plateau at three months, and one way to do it is to deliver more intensive and longer durations of therapy for these patients. Okay, so I think you highlight nicely that challenge of where you target it, when you target it, and how many patients do you need to enroll. I think I mean, you're a very experienced investigator, and you know that doing multi-center randomized controlled trials is a challenge. So I'm curious what you would share with young investigators or other rising investigators about what was your greatest learning from 
this study about design. Would you do anything differently if you were starting it again? Some of it is about what you want to study, but is there anything about the design that you would do differently? Yeah, I mean, I, I think as everyone knows and learns, but until you kind of dive into it, you don't maybe appreciate as much as to do a study like this, it takes a village. It takes a whole group of people at different hospitals to be invested in the study over a duration of time. I mean, it took several years to conduct this study. And I think, again, the things I appreciate it, but I think I appreciate more now is it takes a lot of time to properly train people to do the protocol. And I think we did a good job of that, and it took a lot of time. I think in addition, there's this whole concept of treatment fidelity. You want to make sure there's not creep of the intervention into the control group as people see, oh, we can do this, and then they start doing a little bit more in the control group. And that took a lot of effort to make sure that the control group stayed as the control group through the duration of the study. The third is you need very strong data management and biostatistical help to maintain the validity and accuracy of all the data that's coming in from different hospitals. And we were fortunate to have a good data management group to, to help us with that. And then the, th the, the last part, which is always a problem with the studies, we always overestimate how easy it will be to recruit people for a study um, and how many patients there are that qualify for a study like this. We thought we could accomplish the study in two hospitals, but one reason it became a multi-center study is we realized that enrollment was lagging, so we reached out to other hospitals around the Denver metropolitan area to complete the study in time. Um, and I think that's something everybody always learns, that we overestimate the ability to enroll patients into a study like this, which I thought people would... I thought we had very few refusals for the study, and we did, but it still became hard to find these patients that met our inclusion criteria. So to summarize, recruitment's always a problem. Training and treatment fidelity takes a lot of time and effort, and you've got to have a really strong data management and biostatistical core to complete a multicenter study. Thanks. I think that's helpful for folks who are going to do this in the future, and it's probably stuff that we all learn along the way, but it's nice to hear that you had those challenges as well. Carol, I'm going to come back to you and ask about what you said in your editorial, which was we can learn a lot from negative trials and that the results of this trial don't prove that there's not a benefit to intensive physical therapy in the ICU. We've talked about that a little bit. Maybe it's the timing or the intensity or the duration. But I'm curious, how do you think the results of this trial inform our next steps in studying interventions to decrease ICU-acquired weakness and post-ICU disability? Yeah, I think Mark has touched on this as well. And the first thing I'd say is that there were very wide confidence intervals around the primary outcome measure, the PFP10. And that means that the study was underpowered to detect a difference, although there was not even a hint that there was a difference between the groups in the trajectory of recovery. Um, having said that, if we wanted to do this study again, it would need much larger numbers, as Mark said, or it would need less heterogeneity in the population. So Mark's already highlighted that we could either pick a more homogenous group of patients or we would need a much larger sample size to really detect a difference if we were going to do this again. And we've already touched on the point also that perhaps we're looking at two different groups of patients. As Mark said, they chose study a group of patients who'd been in the ICU for at least four days and looked like they were going to remain for a longer period of time. And that really does mean a group of patients who have significant ICU-acquired weakness and they were hoping to find a difference in being able to manage that and the long, longer-term outcomes of those patients. Unfortunately, 
you know, that also means that they're more likely to stay in hospital for longer and that means that the primary outcome that they wanted to measure was going to be a little bit more difficult. So I think we have to really carefully pick our primary outcome measures based on the population we're studying. And I'm not saying this wasn't, I think this was a great measure and Mark did extremely well at the four-week mark. They only had 86% follow-up, so that was brilliant. But at six months, it was 60% and that really does mean that you know, loss to follow-up needs to be considered carefully and how we use our primary outcome measures or what we pick as our primary outcome measures is incredibly important. Of course, in the study of intensive physical therapy, you want something that is actually going to assess physical function. And I know certainly from our studies across a broad geographic area in Australia and New Zealand, it's very, very difficult to get in-person assessment. So the study by Linda Dennehy and Sue Burney that was published in over 100 patients was only from a single centre and it was probably easier for the single centre to get patients back in to reassess six-minute walk tests, which was their primary outcome measure. But unfortunately, within the ANZIX Research Centre where I work and the clinical trials group, our studies are across Australia and New Zealand and all of our assessment of physical function will tend to be a telephone follow-up as opposed to by inpatient assessment um, once patients have been discharged from hospital. So we need to think really carefully about how we assess function and perhaps disability in the outpatient setting in our group. So probably they're the two things to summarise. I think looking at the, again, the heterogeneity of the population, meaning that we would need a larger sample size and also just considering the primary outcome measure very carefully, firstly so that you can assess it with minimal loss to follow up, but also that it's appropriate to the group of patients that you're treating, which in Mark's case it was and it was, you know, a fantastic outcome measure and I think that, you know, they did everything that they could. As Mark said, they were very disappointed. It was a negative study. I can assure you so are we. I guess what that means for us is that we'll just need to consider doing a larger sample size, a larger trial in the future. Well, I think that's a great lead-in to my final question, which is to Mark. I'm curious, obviously you're passionate about the topic, so now this study is completed. I suspect stuff is ongoing as we speak, but what is it that you're most curious about or what do you plan to study next or what are you studying now about physical therapy or other interventions in the ICU to address weakness and disability associated with critical illness. I would really build on what Carol just said. I think she summarized the dilemma and the future research questions extremely well. I think at one level in the beginning, we need to have come up with measures of who will respond to physical therapy. So I think that's an important area of research. Um, as I alluded to in an earlier question, I think the early time point's important, but I I actually think the later time point is also important and that the duration of physical therapy and the intensity after patients leave the hospital, sort of in that post-hospitalization period, is important. And that's something I think our group will be interested in starting to look at, how to deliver therapy over a longer period of time. And I think the point that Carol brought up is really an essential issue of what are the best outcome measures. That's always an issue for a study like this. And I think there is this controversy or this dilemma between having measures that are questionnaire survey measures, which measure what somebody thinks their physical function is, which is very important, versus having people come back where you're going to have a higher loss to follow-up rate to measure what their actual physical function is. And there are studies out there that, that we've looked at and others that show that those are different outcome measures. That doesn't mean one's better or worse than the other. They're just different. And I think we have to, uh, as Carol alluded to, really identify what is the study question and what is the most 
feasible and important outcome variable for that study. And I think that's something that this field needs to develop and needs to evolve more. I mean, I think we need to understand what those outcome measures should be. So kind of to summarize, I think we need to potentially be able to either risk stratify patients better or do larger studies provide therapy either earlier and or for a longer duration of time, and then identify what the right outcome measures are for these types of studies. I want to thank both of you for all your thoughts on the topic. It's obviously kind of a hot topic in critical care right now, and I think it's something that the readers will be very interested to hear. All the background that went into designing the study, the challenges of the study, and kind of where are we going in the future because I'm confident it's not just the two of you who are believers that physical therapy in the ICU makes a difference, and it's up to us to figure out how best to administer that, measure that, and hopefully get the best outcomes for our patients. I just wanted to finish with a congratulations to Mark because I really think that, you know, this is a great trial that really adds to the body of evidence and that he's conducted it with the utmost fidelity. So congratulations and hats off to you. Thanks, Caroline. I look forward to seeing you in a week or so in San Francisco. It should be a fun meeting. Thanks again to both of you. The homepage for this podcast on atsjournals.org provides links to both Dr. Moss's article and the accompanying editorial by Dr. Hodson. This is Trish Critic for The Blue Journal. I look forward to having you join me for my next podcast.